terrifying situation for thousands of people. Gunmen in the neighborhood killing individuals in a methodical way. When the news got on the radio and the television, people were too frightened to go outside. It happened again and again and again. This is what it's been like in Montgomery County, Maryland. October 3rd, 2002, a day in which a Washington, D.C. suburb became the epicenter of possibly the longest stretching homicidal shooting spree in U.S. history. The sniper shootings across Montgomery County began the day before during the afternoon rush hour at two busy intersections across a two-mile stretch in the area of Aspen Hill. The snipers resumed their rampage the following morning, a Thursday, at 7.41 a.m. behind a car dealership close to North Bethesda. Montgomery County. I guess we don't need police and ambulance. Okay, what's the problem? Uh, somebody's been shot down on our back lot. Uh, somebody's down on the ground. During the next two hours and 20 minutes, there would be three more shootings within six miles of that car dealership. The snipers went as far north as Leisure World, near Route 200, and as far south as Kensington, about four miles from the D.C. line. And all the shootings occurred near busy roads lined with gas stations, restaurants, auto malls, and retailers. So many shootings in such a short span of time. By early afternoon, October 3rd, national media outlets were reporting on the violence. Altogether, six shots, five apparently random victims within 16 hours. Police are stunned. The first six of the known sniper shootings occurred in Montgomery County, but the killings would not end that day until nightfall, just beyond the county line in northwest Washington, D.C. Nobody saw the shooter in the act. No one saw a weapon. Someone saw a truck leaving the area of one of the shootings. And that's all investigators had. In the midst of so much horror, there was cascading fear and confusion. Presented by Law and Crime, this is Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the DC Snipers. is a suburb um, to the northwest of the city where you have just a, it's considered a really safe, peaceful family community. And we have at least had then very low incidents of homicide. It's a family neighborhood is where you think of the sort of like bucolic streets and the planned suburbs and the grocery stores and parks and kids sports, everything you think of when you think of a little suburban enclave. By the time most commuters took to the highways the morning of October 3rd, that suburban enclave was being ravaged by a gunman. The first shooting of that fateful Thursday morning happened in an obscure place, away from view from the major thoroughfares around town. 
39-year-old James Sonny Buchanan, a landscaper, was mowing grass behind a car dealership. Buchanan was the son of a retired Montgomery County police officer and had grown up in Gaithersburg, Maryland. He'd moved his landscaping business to Northern Virginia, but still had customers in suburban Maryland, including Fitzgerald Auto Mall. That morning, he was mowing a patch of grass along Huff Court, a small access road behind the dealership. Then out of the blue, there was a crack in the air. Some service technicians in the parking lot of the nearby car dealership saw Buchanan walking toward them. He had made it up a steep hill. By the time the men saw him, he was staggering, clutching his chest and gasping. His lawnmower kept rolling behind him. Buchanan wound up 200 feet inside a fence before falling to the ground. One of the mechanics ran to him and yelled for someone to call 911. Jim King, who was a parts manager at the dealership, called from the office landline. Montgomery County. I guess we don't need police and ambulance. Okay, what's the problem? Uh, somebody's been shot down on our back lot. Uh, somebody's down on the ground. Okay, what address uh, are you? Uh, 11411 Rockville Pike or Colonial Dodge. And where are you going to be served? I'm in the parts department, but it all went on in our back lot. Okay, did you see the person get shot? No, I was up at the top of the hill and somebody yelled up to call an ambulance. Okay, were they just shot, do you know? Yeah, we just heard the shot. And it's to the rear? Yes, the rear lot of Colonial Dodge. And another employee is with them? Yes, yeah, somebody, there's people down there. Well, I'm, the I'm telling you it was uh, gunshots because that's what we heard. It happened down at the bottom of the lot. We were up at the top of the lot. I, I understand okay. that. Yeah, and I'm saying it was a gunshot. It could have been a blown out tire for all I know. I don't know. But the person's down. You yeah, the person is down. Okay. It was a bizarre scene. The caller initially thought the crack resembled a gunshot, but those close to the injured man assumed the lawnmower had backfired. They weren't thinking the noise they'd heard had come from a rifle. King told the 911 operator that he had a cell phone on him and that he would run down to where Buchanan lay so that he could give a better description. Dispatchers needed to tell responding EMTs what to be ready for. The operator called King on his mobile phone as he was running toward the injured man. Yeah, I'm heading down there right now. Okay. Yeah, he's down on the ground. We got a crowd of people down here. Okay, can you ask if anybody saw that? That's a gunshot! What was it? Oh, a lawnmower blew up on this guy. Okay. He's, bleeding, he's bleeding real bad. Okay. And is he breathing? Uh, yeah, barely. Buchanan had a faint heartbeat, but he was bleeding out. The access road behind the dealership was hard to find, so King called 911 again. Fire an ambulance. Hey, buddy. Yes. Uh, you want to come in on the back street, Colonial Dodge? Come in on Huff Court, uh -huh. on the Nicholson? Okay. Right here at the back lot. What's going on there? Uh, this guy's lawnmower did something, man. It chopped him up. He's bleeding real bad. He's down and out. Okay. His lawnmower caught the curb or something. I don't know. Oh, he was hit by a lawnmower? Something like that, yeah. Okay. Buchanan had a large exit wound through his chest. The hole in his back was smaller, about one-eighth of an inch wide. Buchanan was rushed to the trauma unit at Suburban Hospital in Bethesda. The on-duty trauma surgeon was Dr. Jim Roby. He'd receive a number of shooting victims during the next few weeks. Roby opened the patient's chest and couldn't believe what he saw. Buchanan's heart and chest cavity were almost completely empty of blood. Roby, like mostly everyone, 
was under the impression that Buchanan's wound was caused by a faulty lawnmower. As he stitched the patient, he was asked by someone else in the OR whether he thought Buchanan had suffered a gunshot wound. Roby rolled over the patient. He noticed the small injury wound in his back. He'd seen numerous gunshot victims, but those injuries almost always came from handguns. The injury wounds are much bigger in those cases. Roby still wasn't convinced that Buchanan was a gunshot victim, but he most assuredly wasn't convinced that Buchanan was impaled by a lawnmower blade. 29 minutes after Buchanan was shot, and about six miles away, Prem Kumar Walakar, a 54-year-old taxi driver, had pulled his gray taxi cab into a mobile station on Connecticut Avenue. Originally from India, Walakar was married with two children. Soon after he pulled in and parked, Dr. Caroline Namro pulled to the pump next to him. Namro was originally from England and was a pediatrician. Her youngest child, a two-year-old boy, was strapped into the back seat of her van. Walakar was pumping gas, and Namro had noticed that the gas cap of Walakar's car was in the rear, in the area of the license plate, something she'd never seen before. She made eye contact with Walakar, and the two exchanged smiles. She turned and reached for her wallet to grab her credit card. That's when she heard a bang. She looked up and saw Walakar stumbling toward her. He told her to call 911, and he collapsed in front of her van. Namro called the emergency number from her cell phone. She got out of her vehicle and saw Walakar bleeding from his left side. With a thick English accent and in a panicked voice, Namro told the dispatcher, A man has been killed in front of me. The operator asked how the man was killed. She told him he'd been shot. Perhaps realizing then that Wallacher wasn't dead, Namro started doing chest compressions and administering mouth-to-mouth. Wallacher's pulse was faint. Blood was running out of his wound, and eventually he vomited, which blocked his airway. Namro tried to clear it, but she couldn't. She also tried to seal the wound with gauze. The bullet hadn't exited his body. After entering his left side, Fragments of the bullet sliced through his aorta and left lung. Walakar was pronounced dead on the way to the hospital. Unlike the scene at the auto mall earlier that morning, police knew that the victim at the mobile station had been shot. Meanwhile, the local media were hearing and responding to the scanner chatter, and many of them headed to the mobile station. One of the first reporters at the scene was then WUSA Channel 9 reporter Stacy Cohan. She got a tip from an unexpected source. I got a call from my father because his office was in Aspen Hill. And he said, there is a highly abnormal amount of police here, Stacy. And I hopped in my car. And on the way, I then received a call from my boss to tell me to hop in my car because something was happening. At 8.47 a.m., police dispatch received another 911 call. This time, the call was from Leisure World Plaza, a shopping center located behind a retirement community of the same name. It was a mile and a half north of where Wallacar had been shot. It was the third major emergency response in 66 minutes. Very much like the Buchanan shooting scene, the witnesses at Leisure World were confused about what had happened. This time, they knew there had been a shooting 
They just weren't sure whether it was a homicide or a suicide. Fire and ambulance. Yes, I need the ambulance and police at Leisure World Plaza at the end by the post office. A girl just shot herself. She just what? She just shot herself sitting on the bench there. She just shot herself? Yes. Hurry. Stay on the phone with me. Moments later, dispatch received another call from a witness. We need uh, an ambulance at Leisure World. Okay, we're already on the way. Can you okay. guys, can you tell me what's going on there? There's a lady that's sitting on the park bench and um, she's not moving. A Leisure World security guard was nearby. The second 911 caller handed the phone to him. We had reports that she shot herself. Uh, it, it could be. Okay, our, I don't see a weapon. You don't see a weapon? No. The security guard said he noticed the bullet hole in the window of the restaurant behind the deceased woman. He mentioned that to the operator, who was still thinking the woman suffered a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Alright, well, what I need you to do, the police are going to watch you do, is try to secure the scene as much as you can because we believe it was a suicide. Okay. And get everyone away from her. Okay. And try to find the weapon, but don't touch it. The victim was Sarah Ramos, a 34-year-old former law school student who was born in El Salvador. She had taken the bus to that location and was waiting for a ride from a customer who had hired Ramos to clean her home. Ramos was seated on the bench reading when she was shot. This rifle round that struck Ramos entered the top of her skull. It exited through the nape of her neck and entered the restaurant located about 15 feet behind her. The damaged bullet was found on the floor of the business. The book Ramos had in her lap was soaked with blood. Around the same time that morning, someone from the Montgomery County Police Major Crimes Unit showed up at Suburban Hospital, where Buchanan's body was. He asked to have the bag unzipped. He took one look and knew it wasn't a faulty lawnmower that had killed Buchanan. He asked a hospital worker to roll the body over. He saw the entrance wound and knew what he was dealing with. He called a supervisor, and a police unit responded to Huff Court, where Buchanan was shot. The area was officially designated a crime scene. On top of that, shortly after police responded to Leisure World, where Ramos had been shot, they realized they weren't dealing with a suicide. So it turned out that police were working three homicide scenes. It was only 9 a.m. Pretty soon, the number of murder scenes in Montgomery County that morning would increase again. The fourth shooting of the day happened at 9.58 a.m. Maria Welsh, a pediatric intensive care nurse, had just finished loading groceries in her minivan outside the Safeway on Connecticut Avenue in Kensington, about five miles south of Leisure World. Welsh started backing her vehicle out of the parking space and heard a booming sound. She wasn't sure what direction it came from, but it seemed very close. It caused her to jump. Unbeknownst to Welsh, a bullet from a rifle had just struck a woman who was at the rear of the nearby Shell station. She had been vacuuming a burgundy van. Welsh started driving across the lot heading toward Connecticut Avenue when she heard someone crying out, asking for help. That's when she turned and spotted the woman lying on the ground. A vacuum hose was wrapped around her body. She was bleeding from her mouth and started convulsing. The image horrified Welsh, who instinctively ran toward the injured woman. 
She realized she needed to call for help, so she sprinted back to her van to grab her cell phone. She dialed 911. The emergency operator started probing Welsh for more details. Welsh ran back to the victim, who was lying underneath the open door of her van. Welsh removed the hose that was wrapped around the woman and noticed her lips had turned blue. She also saw that the victim's chest wasn't moving. We apparently may have just had another one down at um, Kensington, Knowles. They appear to be moving around on main thoroughfares, and uh, it's sort of a apparently random shooting to this point. The first police officer at the scene was Terry Ridgely, who had been on patrol a few blocks away and showed up after hearing the call on his radio. When I went there, I uh, wasn't exactly sure what was going on, but quickly came upon someone who was shot, and I tried to get everybody into the uh, gas station. A firefighter at the station across the street ran over. He started performing CPR as Ridgely moved nearby spectators, including Welsh, into the convenience store. He figured the fewer people standing around, the better. In the back of Ridgely's mind, he wondered whether he was a sitting duck for the shooter. The anxiety that Ridgely was feeling in that moment was felt by literally hundreds of other police officers and first responders that day who were working the areas from Leisure World to Kensington. You know, it was it was crazy. It was just a situation, you just not something you would ever expect to happen in Montgomery County. While police and paramedics were working outside, Welsh was still inside the Shell station, along with several other people. She described the scene as confusing and chaotic. At that point, she still had no idea what had caused the woman's injuries. She heard the boom, but didn't see an exit wound. The lady was bleeding through her mouth, not through a hole in her body, so it didn't seem like she was shot. Welsh called her husband, who told her that she needed to get out of that Shell station as quickly as she could. He told Welsh that the lady she had just tended to had been shot, and other victims were being shot around town. The victim who was gunned down outside the Shell station, the last Montgomery County victim that day, was 25-year-old Lori Ann Lewis Rivera. Originally from Idaho, Rivera had left town to become a nanny and studied at a school for budding nannies in Portland, Oregon. She wound up in Washington, D.C. and found work. As she was settling down in a new city, she befriended some fellow members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, many of whom were Spanish-only speakers. That was by choice for Rivera, who wanted to learn the language. That's how she met her future husband, Nelson, who grew up on a watermelon farm in Honduras and had immigrated to the United States shortly before meeting Lori. They got married and had a daughter, who they named Jocelyn. Jocelyn was three years old when she lost her mother. Later that day, hours after police contacted Rivera's husband, the distraught widower was seen near the Shell station where his wife had been shot. He knelt and prayed. 
Rivera was at the Shell station that afternoon vacuuming her client's van. She was fatally shot in the back. The bullet never exited, and it fragmented inside her body, doing severe damage to her left lung. Rivera was brought to Suburban Hospital. Doctors spent 15 minutes trying to revive her, but couldn't. Dr. Roby saw the wound on Rivera and noticed she was shot in the same area of her body as his earlier patient, Sonny Buchanan. He realized someone with a rifle was randomly targeting people. The doctor called his wife and told her not to leave the house. He wasn't the only one who made such a call that day. A sniper was on the loose in central Montgomery County. Five people were killed during a 16-hour span. Amazingly, all five of the fatal shootings in Montgomery County were committed in broad daylight. The victims were three men and two women, born and raised in different parts of the world, and there was no known connection among them. Schools were on lockdown across Montgomery County. All off-duty detectives were called in. News crews from Washington and Baltimore showed up in droves, as did print and national media. All the local television stations were going live. Police set up a command post at a church on Aspen Hill Road, one block from the mobile station where Wallachar was killed. That's also where much of the media assembled. The major crime unit of the Montgomery County Police Department had no one else to spare. Five murders in such a short time was something the department was undermanned for. Few departments across the country are equipped for such a surge. There were only so many homicide detectives to go around. The behavior of the gunman belied conventional thinking. When criminals commit violent crimes, they flee. They don't stick around. And they don't double back to commit more crimes in areas they had already targeted hours earlier. There was a growing suspicion that two people were committing these killings. The shootings were happening in a way that no one saw anything, indicating that someone was acting as a getaway driver. Among those on the law enforcement side whose mettle was tested by the day's events was Montgomery County Police Officer Derek Belisles, who was one of the agency's media liaisons. We didn't have a suspect. We didn't have information. We felt like we were chasing a ghost, basically, because these events kept occurring. We had no control over it. In the midst of all the mystery, investigators did get one clue. It came from Juan Carlos Vieta, a 21-year-old Guatemalan landscaper who was working with a crew on the shopping grounds near Leisure World that morning. He was in the vicinity of where Sarah Ramos was shot. He wasn't an English speaker, so he talked to a crime analyst at the scene who spoke Spanish. Through the police translator, Vieta told detectives that he saw Ramos walk to a mailbox at the post office, grab a booklet, and take a seat at a nearby bench. She was reading the booklet when Vieta heard a loud noise. He looked back toward Ramos and noticed her shaking. That's when he caught sight of a truck with a small cab and a box rear speeding in front of Ramos. It headed down a side street and turned onto Georgia Avenue. He gave more details of the vehicle. He saw the tailpipe coughing out black smoke. The engine was loud, possibly diesel. The lettering on it was black or purple. And because it was in English, Vieta couldn't recite it to police. There was a dent in the rear of it and damage to the rear right bumper. He also noticed that the cab was occupied by two men. He thought the truck was driving fast, almost like it was peeling away. It was a lead, and police felt confident enough with that lead 
to pass it on to the media. Police have had little to go on, only one witness's description of two people in a white truck speeding away from one murder scene. Police are stopping white trucks and vans, but have not found any suspects. So after police released the Be On The Lookout report for that specific vehicle, one that occupies the area's roads by the hundreds each day, the media ran with it. The public remembered it. The chief of the Montgomery County Police Department was Charles Moose. He was scheduled to fly to Minneapolis for a police chief's convention that day. He decided to stick around even though his wife Sandy had already left. Moose canceled his trip at the last minute based on what happened the night of October 2nd outside the shopper's food warehouse. There were so many strange details about that shooting. He thought he needed to remain at police headquarters in Rockville. He was right to follow his intuition. It wasn't long before Moose was having to navigate through a day that consisted of dealing with an anxious media, coordinating responses to every shooting scene, gathering information from detectives, and bringing in aid from outside agencies, federal agencies. Virtually every law enforcement agency in this area, including local police, the FBI, U.S. Marshals, and Secret Service, is looking for whoever is responsible for the worst murder spree that has ever happened here. At one point on October 3rd, during a break between media conferences, Chief Moose observed one detective searching for clues in a parking lot. Moose asked him whether there was anything he needed. Moose did that often for his police officers. Moose would continue to lead the investigation during the next few weeks, moving forward with this case, and as the team of investigators in Rockville grew exponentially in size, Moose would regularly walk up to federal agents, state troopers, and police officers from outside jurisdictions and personally ask what he could do for them to make their jobs easier. The detective that Moose spoke to that afternoon suggested mobilizing a SWAT team. Detectives needed to do their work without looking over their shoulders. The problem was that there were five different crime scenes that day, not to mention two others from the day before, and the SWAT unit didn't have enough members to be at all those places. Just more signs of how strained the department's resources were that day. While a college student in North Carolina, Moose was recruited by the police department in Portland, Oregon. He rose fast through the ranks and earned a Ph.D. in urban studies from Portland State University. He was promoted to chief in 1993. He started getting a national profile at the time, and his ability to maintain good relations between the police department and the community it served was noticed and praised by then-Attorney General Janet Reno. He built a reputation of being a man of the people, someone who walked the walk. Moose was hired to lead the police department in Montgomery County in 1999. Montgomery police were under fire from the local NAACP on allegations of racial profiling. Moose knew that, and he took the job. One skill Moose had was being good in front of the camera. He would rely on that ability a lot during the next few weeks. Shortly after 11 a.m., the morning of October 3rd, Moose held the first of several media conferences that would make him a famous figure. He made it known to the media that he wasn't going to divulge anything that could potentially compromise the investigation, but he did say that he was prepared to give them regular updates, perhaps by the hour. Nothing like this has ever happened in Montgomery County. Uh, this is a very safe community. Our homicide rates 
just increased by 25% in one day. Moose mentioned the white box truck to the media. He also was told by his staff that all the projectiles collected as evidence appeared to come from a rifle fired at long range. We feel like we probably have a skilled shooter, uh, and, and that does heighten our concern. While police were dealing with everything on their end, local prosecutors were also mobilizing, in spite of there being no indication that police were close to an arrest. Doug Gansler was the state's attorney for Montgomery County at the time. In his Rockville office, he and his deputy called a meeting of about 45 assistant state attorneys. It was time for them to do some brainstorming. I called in all the state's attorneys, state attorneys who were around, not in court, to try to discern whether there was any unusual activity, you know, in court the day before, you know, the day of the first shooting, or the previous days before that or weeks where you had some, you know, disgruntled employee or domestic violence issues, cases where there was somebody that was seemingly particularly volatile. The, the thought was this was probably some former military person, probably white, that lived in the Aspen Hill region and was lashing out and committing these crimes. Later that day, Gansler's deputy, John McCarthy, delivered that handwritten list of names to the command center outside the mobile station. As the day stretched on, it started to become clear to McCarthy and everyone else involved in the investigation that they needed to start thinking broader. You have to remember that we, we were really only a year removed from 9-11. And so when this took place and when the resources of the ATF, the FBI, all local law enforcement came together, almost by the end of October the 3rd, there was almost any federal or state agency you, see, you can imagine was rallying to assist us because there was a fear that this was potentially an alternative terrorist kind of activity. Uh, and so many of the resources that had been put together by the federal government to meet a, another terrorist attack or challenge were then put in play. In spite of the FBI's involvement, no hotline had been set up yet, and the workspace at Rockville was getting cramped. Those were issues that authorities were going to have to address, and they would, very soon. It seemed as day was turning into night on October 3rd that police were getting a moment to exhale, there was no repeat of the day before in the sense that there was no afternoon rush hour shootings. If any silver lining could come of the day, it was that. But that small bit of comfort wouldn't last. Around 9 p.m., one of the owners of the Tropicana, a Jamaican restaurant located at the corner of Georgia Avenue and Calmia Road in Northwest Washington, D.C., walked to the parking lot to put the day's receipts in her car she opened the door and leaned into her car, and that's when she heard a loud noise, similar to the sound of a car backfiring. A moment later, a bus on Georgia Avenue came to a screeching halt. Another witness, a man who was standing outside near that intersection, watched everything unfold. He called 911. I'm on the corner of Chalamia and Georgia Street. Chalamia? Yeah. Police and EMTs rushed to the scene and found Pascal Charlot. Charlot had taken the bus from his house and was standing at the corner of Georgia and Calmia. He was across the street from the Tropicana restaurant. 
He had moved his hand toward his face when the rifle round cut through his palm and thumb and entered his chest below his left collarbone. The bullet fragmented and did severe damage inside his chest, fracturing both collarbones and ripping through arteries. A third witness, who was sitting in her car, later told police she saw something puff in the air in front of Charlot in that instant. It was a mist of blood exiting his body when the bullet struck him. Charlot was taken by ambulance to the nearest hospital, where he was pronounced dead. Dave Statter was a longtime newsman for WUSA Channel 9. He lived in Virginia, but on this day he was working in Kensington, Maryland, at the scene of the Rivera shooting. As he was preparing for his 11 p.m. segment, Statter got the news of the shooting just over the county line in D.C. This has never happened to me before or since. It was from a D.C. firefighter who was in the ambulance transporting the latest shooting victim, a man named Pascal Chalot. He said, I think this is the latest one from this apparent sniper that we had in Montgomery County earlier in the day. That certainly got my attention. Washington, D.C., unlike Montgomery County, had a lot of gun violence. But this was different. Pascal Charlot, a Haitian immigrant, was a 72-year-old carpenter who lived at home with his invalid wife. He wasn't involved in any criminal activities. He was alone and minding his own business on that street corner when the bullet struck him down. Metro police suspected it was another sniper shooting. Montgomery police, after they learned about it, had the same suspicions. The killers were on the move, and they were going to keep moving the next day to a college town 60 miles to the south. But Maryland wasn't going to get much of a respite, and the snipers were going to show the world in dramatic fashion just how unscrupulous they were when it came to choosing victims. Next on Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the D.C. snipers. The president said tonight Americans will not live in fear. The thought was right. The reality is not. And it was just like a loud bang, uh, like a grenade went off. Instinctively, I just knew that I was shot. But now we're stepping over the line because our children don't deserve this. Chasing Ghosts is presented by Law and Crime. Music and production by Corey Hiltman. All 911 and dispatch calls were provided by the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. You may follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holt Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. Chasing Ghosts is available on Law & Crime's website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts. <laughs>